Hello guys and welcome to another episode of Chronicles of Life. Today we have a special guest who is Alexander Lewis. He's a fashion designer based in London who's worked with celebrities and stars in the fashion world internationally with years of stories to share. Hello Alexander. How are you? <laughs> with with uh, Clubhouse, either have to work out or meditate either before or after. Oh, okay. So if I'm going to sit on it for like an hour, you know, that way my head space is still clear. Yeah, I know what you mean. I do the same thing as well, but I usually don't do it like in the middle of the day. I usually do it in the. I mean, when I when it comes to meditate, first thing in the morning and last thing before I fell asleep. So right. Okay. So how are you? I'm good, thank you. Good, 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 good. Um, you know, thank you again. I see Natalie in the room. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, just to let Natalie and everyone who will come later, probably, if not, uh, that is going to be recorded because uh, I'm using it for my uh, own personal podcast. So uh, thank you, Alexander, for accepting the uh, my request. It's really a pleasure. And uh, yeah, you are, I've been, I've been searching for you in the you know, internet and I realized that you are a star actually. So I'm, uh, I'm honored, I can say, because you know, you've been through a lot and you've done a lot of things in your life and especially in the fashion industry. So I'm really, really want to go deep with you and you know, see your, your history and uh, what you've been through and all your trips that you've done in your life and which I think it's going to be really interesting to hear. So. Cool. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've seen those kind of postcards as well that you have on your website, and it was really, really, really interesting. So, uh, you were born in Chicago. You lived I in, was, yes. yeah, you lived in San Francisco. Then you get schooled in London. Then you moved again, again in the states in LA, and then uh, uh, to study, and then you work um, for the Oscars as well, if I'm correct. Um, I worked. I did work at the Oscars. I was assisting Andre Leon Talley, okay. um, which was how it ended up happening because he was working um, with a combination of styling several people at the Oscars or um, for the Vanity Fair after party. And then um, in addition to that, he was doing or curating and hosting a fashion show of the history of Oscars fashion at the Academy. Okay, okay. So uh, you were assistant to Vogue next to Andre Leon Talley, right? Correct, correct. Yeah, who was the creative director of the magazine, of the Vogue. He, he did used to be, I, when, he, when we did this, when I worked for him, yeah. I don't think he was still in that position. I think by then it was Grace Coddington, but he had previously been the creative director. And then okay. when I worked for him, he was, an edit, he was the editor at large. Okay. So and here in London, you started your fashion journey in Taylor that... Uh, Saville, Saville Row, Saville Low. Saville, yeah, correct. Yes. I mean, um, I, I, I ended up coming to London to work on Saville Row because of Andre and Lisa Love, who was then and still is the West Coast editor of US Vogue. Um, it was their advice to me to come back to London and go to Saville Row to train as a cutter. I, uh, I mean, I'm. A- a little bit know about Savile Row, but have some really nice and expensive men's suits. I can tell uh, they're really, really fascinating and interesting. So, uh, 
let's go like more more detail in that journey. So you're born in Chicago. Uh, how was the life developed? You know, how was uh, uh, you know start your journey? Well, I mean, I was born there, yes, but I left when I was about one, so I don't really have <laughs> a lot of. My relationship with Chicago came later, really. Um, so when I was one, I moved to California, um, to the Bay Area, to San Francisco, um, with my my mother and my dad. And then my um, my mom and my dad actually split up, which is why I moved there. But my dad came as well. They got back together, and then eventually they decided to split up completely, have a, get a divorce. Um, and so I was living in San Francisco between my mom and my father until. Uh, when I was about eight and a half, we moved to the UK because my mother had been um, engaged to and then married to um, a, Brit, a Scotsman, a Brit, and that's what brought us back to the UK. Oh, okay, okay, okay. And... But I went to school in San Francisco at a school called Stuart Hall for Boys, um, which was kind of a prestigious, you know, prep school, or I guess you'd call it for boys there in San Francisco. It was very like traditional. Um, and I just grew up doing like loads of different sports and gymnastics, baseball, basketball, uh, like, you know, whatever I could get my hands on, I suppose. But at the same time, I was always doing loads and loads of art, arts and crafts, ceramics, you know, making things. And my other love and passion was specifically theater. Okay. So I always wanted to be an actor, actually. Okay. Okay. So... You wanted to be an actor. You were in the sports. You were doing different things like basketball and stuff. But your main purpose was to be an actor. And then um, uh, that was in San Francisco where you were studying. Exactly. But yeah. I mean, you know, I was very young. This was until yeah. I came to the United Kingdom when I was eight and a half. Mm -hmm. um, but I sort of did everything I could that was in like the arts field. I was even for a while in um, <laughs> a children's circus um, in San Francisco. And I was a junior ringleader and I did the trapeze and clowning and all these different things. So I really kind of did all the different things that I could get my hands on. I was also in the San Francisco Boys Choir. Um, so my parents were like very encouraging of me doing as many extracurricular activities as I could like manage to cram into an afternoon until my reading sort of faltered and then they took me out until my reading level was good enough to sort of you know be on top of my schoolwork and then I got to do all the extracurricular activities again so you get school in London and then you move again to 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 the to states to Los Angeles to study in uni correct so yeah, yeah after when I was eight and a half I moved to London I went to a boarding school here in the UK to Harrow which is know um, your very typical British boys boarding school um, and that was really probably where my love for fashion really started I was acting all along and doing like all the theater stuff in school but then I um, ended up just you know hiding in my room as it were when I wasn't doing anything to do with theater and I spent all my time reading magazines like The Face, ID, Dazed and Confused, cutting out all these, you know, photographs and pictures and plastering mm -hmm. them on the room and mm -hmm. the billboard in my room and stuff like that. And it was always something that was like around me. My family was very um, fashion adjacent, I suppose you could say. My mother has kind of always been really into style and she has always been very much, um, you know, 
an important figure in that way, as have pretty much all the women in my family. Mm-hmm. But even my dad was always really into fashion in a sense um, and worked in the footwear business. Um, so I was always very kind of exposed to it. And then when I went to university in LA after I'd finished at high school in London, I actually went to study acting at USC in Los Angeles. Um, but all the while, you know, this I had this notion in the background that like one day possibly I could be this masked designer who was also an actor and that eventually I'd, you know, have this red carpet moment where I would reveal my, like take off my mask and everybody would see that the actor and the designer were the same person. But I got to a place where I realized that acting with, in the program at the university was really kind of not for me um, because I found that a lot of the kids in my class being in Los Angeles, you know, acting is really focused on television and film. And I think I was more of a thespian style actor for the theater. And they would always kind of be like looking over my shoulder in a conversation, not because they were looking for somebody else, but because they were looking for the camera. And I mean, this was like outside of acting class. So I kind of just got to this place where I was like, um, this isn't really for me anymore. I think I'm going to probably, you know, shift away from acting. I finished with a degree in communication and business um, for entertainment, culture, and society as a focus. And that kind of allowed me to sort of... Um, I guess already pivot into like a fashion career um, and alongside that at the university in the business school there was a fashion club and one of the we had all these people coming in doing talks and seminars and visits to factories and to brands in Los Angeles and I mean at the time LA was really pretty much exclusively t-shirts and denim as an industry way way um, less mature than it is today and as a result, um, we now, uh, you know, we decided eventually to stage our own fashion show for the students to all be able to get involved in at that time was kind of like the sort of epitome of fashion was a fashion show and LA did have a fashion week and we wanted to align ourselves as a student body that wasn't a fashion school with LA fashion Week to try to get some interest from the, you know, people that were there. So um, I was the president of this group of the Fashion Industry Association, and we decided that any students at the school that wanted to put together a collection were able to, and then we would show them alongside LA brands that we had managed to practically, I don't know, twist their arms or coerce, somehow convince them to take part in our show as a venue for LA Fashion Week, not at the main sort of Smashbox Studios venue. Um, so that was really the beginning because then I decided, well, if I'm asking people to do this, I might as well do it myself. So I made my first collection. Wow. At that time. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, which kind of was cool and hard and a big struggle and wild. And I was driving up and down the freeway from downtown LA to school to like Laguna Beach and um, down to the port of Los Angeles and all these places where there were different factories that I could work with trying to get samples made just to put together you know a semblance of a collection and I mean I had no idea what I was doing and not that it was any different than any other kids there were maybe three or four students that we decided could show alongside the professional or like the legitimate real brands and um, so I wasn't the only one I was one of maybe three or four students that did it and then the second year it had been so successful we managed to get sort of backing and we managed to pull even more brands away from 
Los Angeles, like Mercedes-Benz Fashion Week at Smashbox Studios to show at the university, which was super strange that they were doing this. So we actually had all of a sudden like real press and real buyers and, you know, kind of the real people that you get and expect at a fashion week showing up to do, to attend like our schedule of shows. And so I decided to put on what really became like the sort of core idea of my eventual brand, you know, years later. Um, I mean, let me think how many years, like, like probably six years later when I launched my brand, it was really based off of the idea that I kind of formulated working on a second collection when I was still at university. Um, so it was kind of like a really cool, crazy experience that we just, as, as students, just threw ourselves into. Cool, cool, cool. Um, and then you, you became assistant to Andrew Leon Talley. When? Yeah, so that was like right after I graduated university. Okay. I stayed in LA. I had been working during university at Decades, which is this really amazing vintage haute couture and um, designer resale shop in LA on Melrose. And I mean, at the time, he was sort of at the center of the fashion universe in a way which people don't really necessarily either remember or know today um but cameron was cameron silver who's the owner he was really really crucial in bringing um vintage both to the red carpet but also to fashion houses all over the you know the fashion industry whether it was milan paris london or new york we would have whether it was the name of the designer, you know, on the business or like the design teams from so many companies coming to us to do their research um, because we had the access to archives of collectors or archives of clients of the haute couture houses um, and we would buy and source things. So they would come in and it was really, really kind of an amazing time to work there. And um, I guess like a funny anecdote that comes alongside working for Andre was that at that time, literally every designer was coming through, whether it was, you know, um, Donatella Versace or Marc Jacobs or um, Anna Sui or like just tons of people and Tom Ford as well was coming through there. And this was still um, Gucci days for Tom Ford. So it was a really interesting time to like be exposed to these people as well as celebrities, stylists, Um, like Rachel Zoe in that time was like when a big, a big, you know, stylist who was shopping for her clients. And um, yeah, so I worked there. And then a friend of mine who was friends with um, somebody that worked at West Coast Vogue said, you know, they're looking for somebody to assist Andre Leon Talley. He's coming to Los Angeles to work on a project for the Oscars. And there's not really anybody in the office at the moment that could do that. Are you available? And I just, I, has, I was actually... <laughs> Um, interning alongside my job at Decades for a company that doesn't exist now called Corpus and the other intern at the time which she probably doesn't remember was Matthew Williams who is now the creative director of Givenchy in Paris so this is like going so so far back but uh, so I took this role I left the internship and took this job working for Andre Dantali and basically he was there to film two episodes of The Hills <laughs> which I don't know if you know of, but it was kind of really like a precursor to so many shows at the time, of the, of the time of this sort of like reality TV following young you know, kids living their lives. Um, so there's two episodes where if you find them with Andre, I'm also in those randomly. And then he was styling several people, um, including Jennifer Hudson, 
and Kamorley Simmons, Naomi Campbell, um, there's one more that I can't remember, for either red carpet at the Oscars or red carpet at the Vanity Fair um, after party. And so... How old uh, were you with, back then? How old was I? Yeah. I was 20. Wow, really young. Wow. Yeah, I was quite young at the time, <laughs> that's true. Um, and so that was like one of the most um, unbelievable... I will cherish that experience forever. It was really an unusual kind of exposure um, to a world that, you know, to me at that time was just literally magazines. And the only thing that had really come out to sort of lift the lid on it for sort of the layman or the greater population was The Devil Wears Prada as a film and a book that people kind of like relate what the experience of working for a magazine or an editor like Andre or at Vogue, you know, would have really been like in reality. So I just remember my very first day working for him, I was given sort of one of those impo impossible lists of tasks to fulfill. And one of them found me sort of like driving all over the city with a credit card that wasn't mine to buy a pair of shoes that was almost impossible to find. And in America, you know, you cannot use somebody else's credit card. You need to sign for it, you need to show an ID. And I found myself in a store telling the sales assistant that it was I, I said to them, have you ever seen the film The Devil Wears Prada? And they said, uh, yes, I have. And I said, this is The Devil Wears Prada. It's happening right now. And if I don't show up with these <laughs> shoes in my hand in an hour's time by the end of the day, I'm going to lose my job on the first day. And she just like looked at me like I was insane. And I just said, please, you have got to help me. I'm not making this up. And she ran the credit card and she helped me. And, you know, the shoes were not exactly the right width but um, they worked and he didn't know this any difference. And so it sort of saved me. And I've never like thought of saying anything quite as absurd as that in my life, but in the moment it really seemed like <laughs> the best course of action. So um, yeah, that was really a cool experience. Wow. And um, we've stayed wow. in touch ever since. So. I mean, being, being 20 years old, having all these you know big names, I mean, That would be a really, really great experience for someone who you know who starts, you know, being around big names and fashion industry. And wow, wow! And then uh, you left after all this experience to come back to London. Which, how that happened? So basically, I was working, you know, still for Andre, and um, he ended up staying in Los Angeles longer than he was originally supposed to do. He filmed a segment for the Oscars. We were on the red carpet doing red carpet interviews with people. Um, at, the, at the Vanity Fair party, then he stayed, he had more meetings, and I was still assisting him, and it just kept, you know, going, and then at one party, we ran into somebody who um, said to him, oh, you know, Andre, have you seen Alex's designs? They're really great, and I'm sure you'd love them, and this was somebody that I knew that I didn't know knew him at the time, somebody called Derek Blasberg, and he, Andre looked at me, and he was like, you're a designer? I said, well, I'm, 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 your, I'm, you know, I'm working as your assistant. I didn't want to say anything. And he's like, this is ridiculous. Tomorrow morning, you have to come to the Vogue offices at 9 a.m. to show me and Lisa Love. We need a presentation of your all your collections, your archive, all your designs. Bring everything. And I was like, oh, okay, tomorrow <laughs> at 9? He said, yes, tomorrow at 9 at the Vogue offices. So I... <laughs> After the party, I dropped him off in his car at his hotel, and I went home, and I just spent all night like preparing everything I had. And this was after I'd done the two shows. So I had two actual collections of samples made up, 
And I also had sketchbooks going back till the age when I was 14 that I like took with me everywhere that I went, you know, when I moved. So I had like six years of sketches and two collections that I went to the Vogue offices um, in the morning and an assistant gave me a rail and I did basically like a go-see as though I was doing a go-see for Vogue. It was like the most surreal thing that I'd heard of these things happening to people, but it wasn't really what I was looking for out of the experience of working for Andre. And they were just super supportive, both of them. And they said, you know, uh, we think what you need to do is move back to London. Um, we can see exactly what we want to see here, but we really think that it would benefit you to go and train on Savile Row as a cutter. It looks like your skill set really um, is honed in on menswear. And once you've done that, come back to us and we will help you. And I said, wow, okay, um, great, I, uh, sure. You know, I didn't really know what to say. And I was not really in mindset of moving back to London. I really had sort of made LA my home. I'd been there for four years. I had still to this day some of my best, best, best closest friends live in LA and I'm back in London. And um, I had a lot to think about. Um, in the meantime, Andre went back to New York and he called me and said, I'd like you to come to New York. I want to introduce you to Alex Bolin, who's the CEO of Oscar de la Renta. They're thinking about starting a menswear collection and I'd like you to come and meet him. And while you're here, I can see if I can set up any other meetings for you. And I said, um, okay, great. When should I come? He's like, well, come as soon as you can and just call me to let me know when you arrive. Which is, it's these crazy things that people like ask you to do without thinking if you're actually capable of doing them or not, you know? <laughs> so. Um, I did manage to go to New York pretty quickly, and um, I let him know that I had arrived, and he set up an interview or a meeting with me with Alex Bolin, and he also set up a couple other appointments and interviews. But um, the reason I had wanted to bring up earlier that one of the customers of Decades was Tom Ford was because he had come in sort of once early on while I was working at Decades, and he came in once much later when I was working at Decades, and he remembered me, we sort of, you know, had like the shop assistant who serves the regular customer kind of relationship, nothing exciting or to write home about. But um, I said to him at that time, um, because I was alone in the store with him, I asked him, you know, how it would work to possibly, you know, get a job with him or work for him one day. And he said, well, if you ever come to New York, just let me know. And he gave me his assistant's email address. So I uh, emailed him when I got to New York to say that I, or emailed the assistant to say that I was there and forwarded my CV and I had asked to possibly, you know, if he had any time at all, I was in town for, I don't know, four days and I would just, you know, be available whenever he needed to see me. And they, we arranged and canceled definitely two times and possibly three times in those days that I was there. And I felt like, well, that's just not going to happen. Meanwhile, I took the meetings that Andre had, been kind enough to set up for me and um they were you know good and i felt good about them and i felt like there was maybe something gonna come out of it but probably not immediately it's just sort of like a connection making um exercise and i was walking down um <laughs> the street and i saw a car in traffic a town car sitting at the red light and the back seat window on the passenger side was open and Tom Ford was sitting in the car 
and I was talking on the phone. So I decided to walk alongside his car, keeping an eye on it to see where he was going and hoping that he might get out of the car because of the traffic. And two blocks later, the car pulled over to the curb and he got out. And I wasn't on the phone anymore. I was sort of pretending I was on the phone because I think I was talking to my dad and I was like, I can't talk to you right now. I can't tell you what's happening, but I'll call you back afterwards. And I think he thought it was also like something really bad was happening. Um, so I don't know where this like energy came from, but I literally just walked up to Tom Ford on the street and I reintroduced myself. I reminded him that we'd met twice in decades, that we had you know, given me his assistance email and said, please reach out to me when you're in New York, which I did, and we weren't able to set up the meeting, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, he thought it was all kind of amusing, I think. Um, and then I said to him, are you, are you going somewhere nearby? And he goes, well, I'm just going a few blocks up the street to my office. And I said, well, can I walk you there? And he said, sure. So I, I don't know what I was hoping out of that experience, but I was hoping to have some kind of like, you know, on the street, on the fly interview with Tom Ford. <laughs> <laughs> and trying not to like appear too scary for having sort of like followed his car for several blocks and then pounced on him when he got out. Um, but the cool thing about it was that he said, you know, well, I live in London. If you ever in London, please let me know. Um, I'm setting up my brand there. It'd be great to meet with you if that's something that's, you know, in your future. And he kind of just left it like very open-ended, but it was all in, you know, the ball was in my court. Should I ever end up in London again? Maybe he'd meet with me. There could be something, who the hell knows. But it just sort of gave me this feeling that like actually maybe it was time to go back to London. So I went back to LA and it was the first of May and I called my mom in London and probably the best phone call of her life. And I said to her mom, <laughs> I'm moving back to London. She's like, what? I thought, you know, your life was in LA and you're doing everything there and everything's going so I said, you know what, I just, can you just, um, I'm just gonna get a ticket and I'm gonna be back there by the 31st. And she's like, okay, if you're sure. And so I just spent a month literally like closing my life, getting rid of, you know, my apartment, my car, all my possessions. I didn't want to go back with anything more than like my suitcases, five suitcases still, but you know, um, and I got on a plane on the 30th and I was back here on the 31st of May. And that was kind of to both to Andre, sorry, you lose me, or it's okay. Um, that was due kind of both to Andre and to Tom Ford and at least Um, so kind of weird and crazy how like everything was pointing me to come back here to try to go to South Yeah, World. I mean, it's really... So I got back. Yeah, it's really, sorry, it's really fascinating. Carry on, sorry. Go ahead, sir. Oh, no, I mean, yeah, I just, I, I, you know, I haven't ever even like sat down and thought about it in that way, but that, the fact that like multiple things were telling me to come back to London to train on Savile Row um, or just be back in London at that time. And I, I just followed them, the messages, you know. And I got back, I asked my stepfather if he knew anybody on Savile Row or if he'd had these suits made there. And luckily he had, luckily he had a tailor. <laughs> so I um, was introduced to him, but at the time he was sort of unwell and not faring so well. And he decided he wasn't going to continue working in the industry. And he made a kind of vague introduction to the new owner of the house that he was the pattern cutter at. Um, and over email and I went in and um, I think I probably sort of met him and sort of like, you know, uh, Patrick, this is Alexander. He's interested in working on Savile Row in an apprenticeship. Patrick's like, nice to meet you. If you ever need anything or, you know, uh, whatever, here's my card and, and let me know what you 
when you're ready and that was that and I think in that time people still connected a lot on Facebook <laughs> I don't even use Facebook really anymore uh, um, so we you... must have connected on Facebook <laughs> I mean the fa Facebook is not oh, yeah, it says... yeah. yeah it said poor connection for me but you can hear no me no right? no I can hear you. Yeah, yeah carry on yes of course oh yeah so uh, he Patrick then um, so sorry I'm jumping around a lot. So then no. I was thinking, well, I'm going to try to figure out how to get a job on Savile Row. It's really actually very difficult to get a job on Savile Row. As much as they need people to come and apprentice and learn the trade on so many levels and different career paths, it's actually extremely tricky to get an apprenticeship. So while I was working on trying to figure out how to get an apprenticeship, I got a job working um, at Harrods as a personal shopper um that kind of came from the fact that when i was living in la you know having assisted andre leon tally and having also done some other assisting work to other stylists friends of mine i sort of was able to kind of clobber together a very vague not very um, convincing cv but at least it said vogue and i went to harrods and i actually just wanted to get a job working in the personal shopping department but they got but they thought that I was applying for a personal shopping position and they gave me the job, you know, and the day later. And I sort of just said, well, look, if I'm going to be making money and I moved back here and I need a job, why not just take it? So I actually spent a year working as a personal shopper at Harrods um, while it was still owned by Muhammad Al-Fayed. And that was, I always say, like the second year of my master's in fashion education, having worked you know, combining the first part of working at Decades and then Andre as my sort of first year, although it was longer than a year, and my second year, which was all focused on retail and ultra high net worth customers and so on, was working at Harris, which was, I would think, probably like one of the funnest years of my life, <laughs> just because it was such a crazy, crazy place to work at the time. Okay, so you were personal shopper in Harrods. Uh... Did you somehow met there Tom Ford, like you say to you that you know I have an office or I live in uh, I live in London? Did you somehow get in touch with him since you went to London? So I didn't at first because I was sort of trying really. I was very focused on the Savile Row thing, and while I was working at Harrods, I started going to school part time to get um, what they call in the UK an NVQ, which is a National Vocation Qualification in. Um, Uh, in tailoring, in bespoke tailoring, so that I could use it as a stepping stone to getting a position on Savile Row. And when I was ready to start applying for jobs on Savile Row, I also reached out to Tom Ford and his office. And again, you know, it, it's like one of those things that just wasn't written in stars because we went probably over the course of several months between myself and his assistant at the time arranging multiple meeting interviews that just never were able to happen because of his travel schedule or sudden things that came up or that he would, you know, um, I remember there was one day where um, after I'd actually started working on Savile Row that um, I was really ill for like five or six days one year and, um, or in that year, which would have been in 2007 or eight. 
And I missed an email from his assistant saying, Tom Ford is in London and he'd love to see you if you're available this week. Well, I was in bed sick and I wasn't looking at my email, so I missed it. So it was always like never really written in the stars that anything yeah. should have ever happened. Yeah. Um, but the thing about the Facebook thing was that eventually while I was training to you know, get my MBQ and bespoke tailoring, the owner of the house, um, Patrick Grant, who's the owner of Norton Sons, sent me a message on Facebook saying, if you're still interested in a, an apprenticeship, we have a cutting apprenticeship opening, um, and you know, you're very welcome to come and interview. And so I went through the interview process and I got the job. And I left the program of um, the studying part-time and I left Harrods to go work on Savile Row. Okay, okay, and this is where you're actually you know, your big journey in London uh, as a fashion designer actually starts, right? Like, more like a professionally. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that it was, you know, that was my real training. I didn't go to fashion school, but I have the training of a pattern cutter. And um, a lot of people that go to fashion school don't learn how to cut patterns. They learn how to design as a process. They learn the sort of where to do research and how to get their creative juices flowing and how to be creative. But I wanted to learn in a way that for me felt like if I was going to be a designer 50 years prior, I would have gone to apprentice in a house, in an haute couture house in Paris, you know, to learn the craft of making clothing at that level, as opposed to the craft of necessarily designing the clothing. So um, it was really the beginning of my yeah, professional fashion journey in that sense. And I worked in the in the bespoke business. We had some amazing customers and clients who, um, as the rule goes, we you don't talk about while they're still alive. Um, so I can't really share them. However, some of the stuff that we did that was also interesting and wasn't just in fashion. I mean, sorry, it wasn't just bespoke because we actually did a lot of fashion collaborations with brands like um, Christopher Kane and Erdem and the Couples and... Um, Who else do we do things for? Um, quite a f I mean, just like a whole variety, like a lot of London brands, Henry Holland. Um, one of the people though that we did, I did cut a suit for, and he unfortunately has passed away now, was Alexander Lee McQueen. Um, so it was quite an interesting, but very rigorous training period. And the apprenticeship is usually five years, but the house was so busy and growing so quickly that I had to go through it in about two years um, and finish my apprenticeship five years and two years and get straight to work. Um, and they also at the same time were launching a men's ready to wear business called eTots. So I was working kind of between the bespoke side and the ready to wear side of that business. Um, and eventually I decided I wanted to leave entirely to start my own brand. And Patrick asked me to stay, but move over to the men's wear ready to wear business exclusively as um, sort of the head of brand and business development, which is sort of, you know, a generalist term for, I just sort of ran the show. Um, and that was a really cool time because I think at that moment, London fashion was a amazing, but was really having a lot of energy from the menswear side to compete with what they were putting out on the women's wear side. So it was an exciting time to be working like really in the thick of things in the way that I was. Well, uh, so uh, you mainly when you first came in London in um, in the Savile Row, it was mainly men's, right? You were working, or then you jumped to the women's. Yeah, it was. I mean, you know, I would say ninety-eight percent of what's made on 
Saburo is for men, but there were female customers that were coming to have clothing made. Um, there were also the collaborations we did with the fashion houses often were for women, not for men. Men's they were for women's wear collections, not for men's wear collections. Um, and that was because, you know, from my feedback that I'd had previously from Andre and from Lisa Love, it was really they felt I should go down a menswear route. I mean, I've seen a, I've seen a video of you on uh, YouTube. Uh, it was I think it was back in two thousand fourteen. That costume that you're wearing, oh my God, that was. <laughs> I mean, in the advertising or something like an interview of you, it was really, really, really amazing suit. I can say. I can oh, say. I, I don't even know which video that is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was back back, fact, back in though, the years. If you yeah. Were, I don't know if it's my name is attached to it, but there's a video on. YouTube that has like 2.2 million views, um, which is nothing in the greater scheme of things on you know YouTube. But for me, it's it's me showing people how five ways a gentleman can tie a scarf, and it's the most viewed how to tie a scarf video <laughs> on YouTube. So it's kind of like one of those ridiculous uh, things that exists. I, I I I have to look for it. I have I, I haven't seen it to be honest. I have to look for it because I've, I've it's seen... not it's not it's not my name isn't attached. Ah uh, okay okay. So I'm I'm gonna then I'm gonna sit for like uh, how to tie a scarf then uh, probably. It's gonna, it's gonna yeah, pop up. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, after the Savile Row experience, what was then? How you end up here in the uh, company that you are? So, okay, so after Savile Row um, and after the menswear business, I decided I was ready to start my own business. But I also felt at that time that I was really, really still drawn and pulled to working with women's wear. But I felt that I had a really interesting kind of like tactic bringing together tailoring and menswear nuances with women's wear and also um at the time only the really biggest fashion houses and biggest brands were doing pre-collections for resort and pre-fall and i felt there was a major opportunity in the market to essentially launch myself as a pre-collections brand so i was pretty much the first business the first designer brand to do that i i I'm not saying I am the first because there could have been somebody else that did it, but I think I was probably the first to do that um, as like the core business of, you know, core ethos of my business and my business um, plan was based on that. And it got me a lot of attention um, and really, really great press. And I, and I got amazing stores from the first season as a result of this. Um, and I really kind of like filled a hole in the market um, that, you know, I just saw, and I felt like it was the way to go. Um, and it was very quick the whole time working, you know, I started off just doing two collections a year. Everything was made in London, except for my knitwear, which was made by hand in Wales. Um, and I was very conscious of having a sustainable business without ever talking about sustainability because it really wasn't part of the conversation at the time, but it was sort of starting. And I just felt like if I can see the factory where my clothing is made, if I can take the tube to get there and not, you know, even pick up the manner, like the production myself and carry it home with like an assistant or the biggest shipping would be coming from Wales to London on sort of a you know, like DHL truck. Um, it was, to me like the most sustainable I could make the business um, and it grew quickly and it was popular with um, 
private client business in particular. It was early days for it to sort of really succeed on a wholesale business because I was only offering pre-collections. And while the buyers and the stores had 70% of their budget assigned to pre-collections, they still really put that 30% left into bringing in new brands and the fanfare and publicity that comes along with the main seasons of spring, summer, autumn, winter in, you know, March and September. So it was a bit, it was a struggle, but I had a really amazing private client business that I was able to build up. And at a certain point, it really, really overtook my wholesale business to kind of be the driving force of my brand. Um, And knitwear also was the real driving force within my brand. And at a point it came to being almost 70% of well it was from the very first season over 50 percent of my business was knitwear and by my last season it was more like knitwear with some additional things to make sure that you weren't naked (laughs) (laughs) um and at that time as well however i came to the realization you know that i needed to stop um things were going really well i'd moved it over to a direct consumer pretty much business um, with only a few stores that were really there as like a marketing, you know, expense. Um, And I had this sort of like come to Jesus moment, I guess one day when I was doing my showroom in Paris, I had a terrible experience with a blogger. And it was really like the one time, it was one of many episodes that happened throughout the time that I had my business and throughout you know my entire the entirety of my experience working in fashion but it was the one final straw that broke the camel's back you know as it were because I just felt like that's I don't see myself being the person that I had to be that day in order to service and take care of a blogger who really didn't deserve the time of day that I was giving to them but I was bending over backwards and really suffering on the inside by virtue of what was being demanded of me and I thought to myself you know as amazing as everything is right now and how great I feel about the business I think it's time to stop um so I took a month just thinking about it um from that was October I took actually maybe like almost six weeks I suppose until the end of November um and then I was visiting my family for Thanksgiving in the States and talking to my dad, I decided, you know what, it's it's done. I'm really, really done. I'm going to close my business now and I'm going to take some time to figure out what I'm going to do next. And I'd realized that I wasn't enjoying myself anymore was the main thing. I was not the first person in the office every morning. I was not the last one to leave. I was not really on top of things and enthused about things. I was sort of dragging my feet, doing the minimum amount of effort required for everything to continue sort of sailing on as necessary. Um, So I decided that I went back to London and I told my team that unfortunately that was what was happening. The business was going to close. They all had three months notice. They were either allowed to leave straight away if that felt better to them or they could stay and work it you know, work through the rest of the time. And, uh, I, yeah. And and the crazy part is like in that time we did some amazing, amazing projects in those last three months. And it felt great because, um, I had previously dressed lots of different celebrities throughout the time that I had my business and made custom made items for different 
you know, actresses and singers and worked with various different stylists and made costumes for movies and like loads of things that, you know, you expect or would think of in a sort of fashion business that you may have the opportunity to do if you're on that particular type of, you know, business trajectory. And um, one of the people that obviously, you know, being in fashion and at that time and younger than I am now, although I still would say I love her, was Lady Gaga. I had had the opportunity to dress her for an audition that she did for a movie that she, I don't think she got the role in that film, but she wore um, a look that I had sent for her to wear. And so I was always on the radar of her stylists. And then her stylist contacted me and asked me if I would make her a suit that she could wear for the, um, for her Joanne album sort of lead single um, million pieces. And it was a pink suit that they wanted to be made in a sort of country western style for her. Um, and so I did that and they loved it. And they said, great, can you make us three more identical suits? Which I did. And then they said, great, we love this so much. Can you make us 10 more identical suits? <laughs> so I made them because she, you know, they go through like shooting music videos and whatnot, they go through them, they get damaged, whatever happens. And then the next follow-up music video was a follow-on from that original one where she is kind of like a zombie, I think. And, um, and she's been like through Armageddon or something. And so she's wearing a suit, the same suit, but it's like been like torn to shreds. So you can hardly tell that it's the suit, but they needed so many versions of it for like the storyline to have continuity. Um, and so the last thing I did really with my own business was like make these 14 suits for Lady Gaga um, that she wore. And, you know, at that time it was kind of like her relaunching album and it was everywhere, that pink suit with the pink hat. Um, and then my business closed and people were like, what, how did that happen? Like, I don't understand. You just like made, you just dressed Lady Gaga. You did the clothes and you're like, you made the super music video. Like, how's this, what did you, what are you thinking? And I was like, well, I'm done, you know? go out on a high as they say so that was the end of that and I took some I took about that was um, let me think that was in the spring of 2017 and I took about nine months off from work um, to just reset myself and kind of find you know a happy place again within myself um, I spent a lot of time like assessing what I want to do, what I want to be, what makes me happy, just traveling. I spent the six, the nine months saying yes to a lot of things. I wasn't like saying yes to anything crazy. But if somebody said like, oh, do you want to go for dinner? I'd say yes. Do you want to go away for a weekend? I'd say yes. My partner, you know, travels a lot. Um, he works in the art world. So he would just say, do you want to come to this fair? Do you want to go to this show? Do you want to come and see this exhibition? I was just saying yes to everything that I felt was like a creative outlet. Um, or some kind of potential inspiration for something. And it was really, really great. And I do feel like I got myself back to a, an extent. Uh, at the end of the nine months, the Patrick Grant, who owned the tailoring house where I had originally trained on Savile Row, contacted me and asked me if I was looking for a job. No, he didn't ask me if I was looking for a job. I ran into him and then he contacted me after we ran into each other to say there was a job that he thought I would be perfect for. Um, he knew I wasn't working and that I'd closed my business. And I 
thought about it and I wasn't really sure I should do it but I decided you know what I'll do it for a year and see what happens it'll be a great way for me to get my feet you know wet again and just see what's happening in the market so I actually ended up back on Savile Row um, running the tailoring house this time not as a pattern cutter but sort of like as the business director and I kind of took it as an opportunity to like do the work that I needed to do there. It's very regimented on Savile Row. It's nine to five, nothing before and nothing after. <laughs> it's no weekends. It's very kind of old school in that way. So I had a lot of additional time that I hadn't really had working for myself for seven years. And um, I started meditating. I started doing transcendental meditation, which um, I don't know if you know anything about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Know, yes. So I started doing that, and it really made like a huge difference for me. Um, and I started just doing all these other little like creative things that I felt would um, help me. I did a weaving course um, to learn how to weave on a loom. Since um, when I had my brand, all the cloth that I used, um, sort of like ninety percent of the cloth that I used. I designed and had woven um, on jacquard looms for the collection. So I didn't make it, but I was very involved in that kind of side of the business. And it was something that I felt very close to, and I really wanted to do something with my hands and be tactile in a creative way. So I just, you know, was doing things alongside it. Um, and one of the things that had happened while I had my own brand was that um, a friend of mine from university's husband had started a women's hosiery brand at the time called Heist, which still exists. Um, it's a women's sort of underwear, undergarment and hosiery company. And he had left or stepped back from working there and asked me to meet to talk about some ideas he was having about a new business. Um, and that was where what I do now started to come up, which is Sheep Inc. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Talk, talk a little bit about this company because I think they've done something interesting with the clothes. Yeah, so we had a lot of discussions discussions about like what it could be to start a new business in the fashion industry, what it meant to start a business in the environment that we're in now with the climate crisis. And uh, also, I had always been, you know, as I said, conscious of what it meant to be sustainable, but I also wasn't necessarily sustainable in the way that I could have been or I could now be at the time that this conversation was happening and so Edzard had had a son recently and was suddenly you know um, very focused on sustainability and because he had his own business in the fashion industry he was very acutely aware of the downfalls and where the problems were and essentially he wanted to start a fully sustainable business that was carbon negative and we examined various ways to do this and forms of business and products that we could launch this with and instead we ended and sorry not instead we ended up landing on knitwear and specifically merino wool knitwear um and really focused on the idea of examining every part of the supply chain and the product to make it as sustainable as we possibly could, um, which is now where we are. So it's 10 times carbon negative. Um, and we've been in business now for mm-hmm. about a year and 
four months or a year and five months, something like that. I'm not one of the co-founders. It's it's Zard and Michael who are the two co-founders, but I'm the head of design or head of product there. So I've been working with them since the beginning, and it's really a fascinating and amazing company, but also time to be working in the fashion industry in the way that we are doing. Yeah, I think I think that's a really really interesting project, and I haven't seen anything like it before. So. Uh, I've seen your website. I've seen a couple of uh, you know uh, a conversation that happened recently with the co-founders and you. So yeah, I think it's something really interesting. But it's mainly for ladies, or it's for men as well? No, it's actually um, it's non-gendered. Ah, uh, uh, yeah, unisex. yeah, yeah, yeah. And that comes down to like our belief that you know for clothing to be truly sustainable there can't really be gendered clothing mm-hmm. because you need to be able to potentially share it with somebody else or not limit the resale economy if you choose to sell it it shouldn't be something that only you know half the population can buy um and we focused in on the idea that like a crew neck in merino wool was probably as sustainable we could get to start with and it mean okay it could be perceived as slightly boring and the colors slightly stayed but we wanted to build a really solid base that we could then develop off of and bring in colors color stories um collaborations additions all these things based off of a really solid foundation um so we started with the crew neck we added um a lightweight crew neck after that and a v-neck a cardigan a beanie um We've done one edition, which was actually with myself as a designer, not because um, my name isn't really attached to the brand in that way. Um, and so now we have two more editions coming this year with other designers, one from um, the UK and one from the Netherlands. And then we have uh, other things in progress too, but always conscious of like what it means to be, you know, a, a unisex company. It's a really interesting conversation that I um, I enjoy having because I always try to ask the question or at least draw attention to the fact that when brands talk about unisex clothing, generally speaking, it comes from the perspective of either um, female designed male appropriated or the reverse male led design female appropriated so the boyfriend gene well there's no such thing as a girlfriend gene but why is there such a thing as a girlfriend gene or you know the granddad vest or sweater whatever that may be so these pieces of clothing that women are encouraged through trends or fashion to start wearing are still gendered as masculine and this is something that like we're really conscious of looking at and i constantly like ask this question of myself and of the team like what does it mean to have gender non-gendered design led clothing what does that look like and it's really tricky because i don't actually think it exists yet um really yeah that's <laughs> so why it's that's something... why it's really interesting i mean i've seen uh i've seen, I've seen your website and uh, it was like a as you say like more like unisex no gender i was like okay and it's also like, you know, uh, the thing with the carbon. And I was like, okay, that's really, really, you know, first time I've seen, although I'm not in the fashion world, but, you know, I'm looking here and there, but it was really, really interesting, the project. Yes, I think, um, yeah, I, and I definitely think also when you look at the brand at the moment, it does have a slight appearance of being male-led because 
you know, it is, <laughs> I design it, I'm a man. Um, I see myself as a man. Um, my pronouns, I don't often, you know, use that terminology, but I say I'm he, you know, yes, he, yeah, yeah. Um, and so on, he, him. So I obviously have some kind of imprint that I'm going to make when I design. Um, even though I've previously designed for women and I am conscious of how to design for women and I know how to do that, we still are, uh, you know, designing clothing that um, is supposed to work for men and women, but it looks like masculine clothing. And so it's not just enough to sort of do the reverse and do things with um, female-led design and then just stick them on a guy. Like, it's not enough to just, you know, make a, a knit dress but photograph it on a man and say, that's for men too. It's really much more about looking at how we can really, from the beginning, approach design without it feeling like it's been gendered, and it's extremely difficult. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, it makes more sense. I mean, there's a lot of women that they can they can say like, I would, I'm fascinating, or I like to wear more like a masculine kind of, you know, like men's kind of uh, uh, clothes. There's women that I like to wear like uh, masculine fragrances as well i've noticed and i've seen a lot of women that actually can go more to boys kind of style uh, thing than as you say exactly the opposite for a man to go more to to a female at, uh, in a clothing style right uh, i would like to ask you what what were your really f- uh, your early fashion influence like my early fashion influence yes um, so my early, okay, so the earliest memory that I actually have of something to do with fashion is um, when I lived in San Francisco and I was very young, my mother used to go shopping on the weekends at, I don't, like, uh, sorry, Saks Fifth Avenue or Neiman Marcus or, like, these sort of upscale stores. I don't know if she was buying anything, but she was definitely taking me with her <laughs> into these shops. And um, while she'd be trying things on, sometimes she would um, my bring my best friend at the time, Lisa, um, Lisa Fike, and the two of us would go and we would sort of be sitting outside the dressing room but instead of just like sitting outside the dressing room, we used to play in the evening wear department at these department stores. And they used to have these like circular racks with all the gowns hanging around them or whatever the brand's dresses were like hanging to the floor. And we would crawl inside them and it would like be like almost being like in some kind of like missile silo. And we would um, collect sequins or bugle beads or whatever the dresses had embroidered on them that had fallen off on the floor and collect them while my mom was shopping or trying clothes on so <laughs> that's my first fashion related memory which is sort of um an unusual one but it's definitely there and then um the other thing is that i just remember always 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 my mother would get her nails done you know, on the weekend, and she'd always be very well put together, and she had, like, the big 80s hair, my grandmother was the same, she always wore brooches, my mother's mother, so my maternal grandmother always wore, like, um, a belt, like a wasted belt, a waist belt over whatever she was wearing, and a scarf around her neck tied, like, on the side, and, like, amazing sunglasses, so there was always, like, just these hyper-stylized women around me, and then um, I think because of that and because my parents were quite interested in style as well, 
it just trickled down, you know, and I was always kind of like the little kid that was sort of like styled, you know, like in acid wash jeans and Reebok high tops and like a crazy shirt with like a cool hat in 1989 in San Francisco. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I, I have really very early memories of things to do with fashion. Okay. Okay. So you you say you say uh, back back in the years you say that your style was uh, uh, more like a casual Americanist European touch. Is that changed now, or that's your style since uh, back then? Um, do you mean my personal style or like yeah. my design style? Yeah, yeah I mean, so yeah. My personal style has gone through so many changes over the years. Um, you know, because at that time I was being dressed by my mother <laughs> or my dad. So, um, you know, I didn't really have a choice, but I suppose my mother being hyper style, you know, literate herself meant that I looked like I was. Um, but at the same time, they dressed me quite preppy. Um, too, especially around my grandparents and other, and I went to, you know, these very traditional schools where I had to wear a blazer and shorts to school with a tie and such, and like penny loafers. So I really grew up like that was, you know, the, the daytime for me and the rest of the time I had this kind of like boy, like kids, boy band slash <laughs> Disney, um, actor vibe going on I suppose then when I moved to the UK it did start to shift and I really really became personally invested in fashion living in London and um, I went to boarding school here in the UK as well um, from the age of nine and when I was in at Harrow and I you know we would wear our school uniform but whenever you weren't at class and it wasn't school time you were allowed to put on your own clothes and you really would see kids starting to experiment with style and I was in the closet and I wasn't really comfortable in myself but I was very comfortable with experimenting with fashion somehow which you know I don't know I, I obviously like had no conscience of what I looked like to other people because I thought I was in the closet but I'm sure my clothing said otherwise um, and I really like experimented a lot with like flares and bell bottoms and you know like wearing like super baggy wide leg trousers and then like a really tight top or then I would wear like really tight um uh corduroys with like a baggy sweater and t-shirt and I went through the whole like dressing like Ross from Friends stage with a t-shirt and a v-neck sweater for years and I wore like I was really into sneakers and stuff but I definitely didn't dress like the other kids at school Um, and yeah, now my style is much more, I'm very into like technical clothing, <laughs> okay. so like technical sportswear and then like very luxe, um, or conservative. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, how about the, uh, I'm, you know, I'm really interested to find, uh, about your postcard that you have, uh, you know, the stories that you have in, uh, in your website, this, is this all the place that you've been that you travel? Is this on the Alexander Lewis yes, website? Yes, yes. Oh, so what I did when I had, that was when I had my brand still, I used to do um, a thing which was called postcards from my girlfriends. Mm -hmm. And I would ask friends of mine that were traveling or that lived elsewhere, whenever they, you know, to send me a postcard. And actually there's an Instagram account, which is still there. So it's kind of like an archive. 
of this called postcards from my girlfriends and um it was very simple i would just say if you're going somewhere oh can you just send me an email please with you know one thing that's a tip of something to do in the place that you're in one tip about what you would wear or pack in your bag and try to include something Alexander Lewis, <laughs> okay. basically. Okay. As a, like, it was like a marketing um, strategy. And so they would send it, and then I would post it on um, Instagram, and it would go on the website as kind of like a journal. And I've always loved travel, so it really played into this idea of like also having a bit of a travel guide for the world of Alexander Lewis, for yeah. the woman. I really, I really loved it. I really like it. I mean, you know, even the even the the photos as well are really fascinating. It was some places from Greece as well. So yes, I, well, yes. the very first one I think was from a friend of mine, Eva Fakatselis, who went to Amorgos, and yeah. so her postcard was from Amorgos. I mean, even your accent is not that bad. Say, uh, you know, say Greek Amorgos, for example. It's not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so I'm curious, what what inspires you the most? I really think it's everything that I get when I it really travel really inspires me and exposure to other cultures and sounds and languages and food and clothing and just all of the sort of stimuli that happen when you're outside of your normal environment um, every collection that I used to design was really based on a trip every season had a very specific inspiration behind it whether it was a trip to a beach in brazil or a trip to tokyo or a trip to um jerusalem and tel aviv or you know uh where else um now i'm forgetting everything i did but or like a skiing trip or something like that so it was really like i would do a lot of research um about everything i could possibly find to do with the location mm -hmm. What's your favorite destination you've been so far? What was your, I mean, um, uh, Tokyo. Tokyo, right? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Why is that? Um, I think it's just this place that I've always been fascinated by before I'd even ever been there. I just loved anything Japanese. I have a Japanese dog called um, Ryo. He's a Shiba Inu. Um, I've always just liked the culture and art from japan like in the sort of traditional sense and obviously they have like an incredible history of fashion and cult like culturally creative energy um and when i got to go there for the first time it was like everything that i had wished it could possibly be and more and um afterwards i decided to start learning japanese because um i also love the olympics and this was three years ago so we decided to start learning japanese so that we'd be able to you know get around without too much problems at the summer olympics that didn't happen last year <laughs> so yeah. yeah wow i mean so, so, i'm a japanophile you could say so you know some japanese i assume i do but i'm so <laughs> you know i haven't been well when that was the last time i was in japan probably in early 2019 yeah was the last time i was there and i'd been learning japanese at that time for a year and it was amazing to go and have the little japanese that i had became so much in a really short period of time okay. but now obviously i haven't been back we have our lessons over zoom 
Um, you know, I use Duolingo. It's very difficult to really excel at a foreign language unless you're using it regularly. Well, I assume it's more, it's more difficult than Brazilian. It's definitely harder than that. It's probably closer, you know, in terms of a difficulty to something like Greek because it's a completely different <laughs> alphabet. Yes, that's true. That's true. That's true. Um, what was your biggest challenge in your life and how you overcome it? Um, something that, you know... You know, yeah, I, I, I think <laughs> one of my biggest challenges, and I think... I'm still overcoming it, but it would just be myself. You know, usually I think when you're a creative individual and you're really drawn to anything that, you know, any kind of career in the creative fields, you are dealing a lot with your inner critic and your inner saboteur. And I think I've had some great um, triumphs over it. And one of those I would say was closing my business. You know, I really wholeheartedly think that that was one of the best decisions I've ever made in my whole life. You know, I'm only 35, so hopefully I'm going to have other great decisions to come. Um, I know I have had other great decisions, but I would say that that decision probably saved me a lot of pain and upset and sorrow. And I have, I feel so good about having made that decision to close my business for myself as opposed to, you know, it being a decision that I had to close it because of extenuating circumstances or outside factors that drove it to be something that I had to close. So because because you know usually usually it hurts, you know, when you you know start your own your own business, your own company and then you know you decide to uh, you know to get to, to get out from it and you know when you were about to get out from it then you were designed the um, the, the Lady Gaga kind of uh, clothes and you were like still still saying like you know what no that's it it's done i mean because i've been there alexander it's not easy you know i'm kind of i'm coming in the in the in, in where you were there with your company i'm kind of in the same situation right now you know i have a company and then there's a lot of issues that are going on and it's but i think what what i realize is that uh, sometimes you know even things that you love you have to let them go so you know the future probably is going to be even better than, you know, the one that you actually create by yourself. So uh, Definitely. Uh, I mean, people always say, like, even like friendships, you know, if you get rid of the bad friendships, you make room for the good, for new, better yes, friendships. And yes. I think it's like that everything in your life. If you have a bad career or something bad, you know, a bad job that makes you unhappy and you are brave enough to get rid of it, you're making room in your life for something better to replace it. Definitely. Uh, what what success success looks like in your life? What is success for you? What is what is looks like Alexander Ward? You know, I, I think my mind changes on this all the time. But I would say, um, for me, success really looks like having a really healthy relationship with yourself, mm -hmm. um, having healthy relationships with those around you, and being able to find moments of joy and pride and you know um, the feeling small feelings of success i think if you're able to have small continual moments where you feel like you've been successful you will always feel successful regardless of whether you have 
some major moment to look back on at some point and say, oh, I did that, at least I did that, but then what about the rest of your life? But if you're able to have, you know, small um, moments that you've conquered or that you've really surprised yourself or others or managed to be happy about different things and it's they're, they're happening all the time, that I think is success. Did you have in your life a lot of small success so you can be like, feel like you've been successful or you have more like a big ones and then you were feeling like uh... well i think i used to be super focused on the big ones mm -hmm. and i think i'm not as focused on the big ones now and mm -hmm. i feel more successful um in managing or taking care of myself in that way because i'm not so focused on these sort of potentially unattainable but definitely difficult to attain moments and instead you know every day I write down three things that I'm grateful for from the day before in the morning in my diary mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, or if I decide to you know work on something for five minutes and instead I work on it for half an hour you, these kinds of things are eating better taking care of my body and my mind like all of those sorts of things I feel like are really important successes that lead to the feeling of success and not chasing the big successes because I'm always having small successes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I will, I will, you know, I will, I will keep that in mind about the small successes because I never, I never kind of think about the success like that. And I think that you're right. Sometimes when you're uh, after in the big successes, then, you know, but when you have small success, sometimes you ignore them and then, you know, you realize that, exactly. yeah, you realize that some, most of the time the small successes is actually more uh, it keeps more in balance than to have a big one and then you go down you know what I mean so Definitely. yes yes uh, how are you dealing with failures in your life well I mean I think that the closing of my business is a great example because it would be perceived as a failure to have you know my mm -hmm. business is gone, but it was such a, but it was my own decision. I owned the decision to close my business and I feel, and I've felt great and I still feel great about that. Um, and I think it's about sort of, you know, flipping the failure on its head and learning from it or taking a positive from it. I mean, it sounds like everybody says the exact same thing um, about failure, but I don't, because I feel like I look at the small successes and because I feel like I'm not, so focused on climbing impossible mountains I'm also not having major failures it's not that I'm not challenging myself or that I'm not striving to do more but I'm not setting myself tasks that whatever happens I will consider them to be a failure and that is the relationship with your inner saboteur inner critic taking over so if I was saying like you know by the end of this year I need to do whatever have a company that I grow from nothing and I sell it to a, I don't you know a VC and then we IPO it by January next year and we raised a billion dollars like I'll probably consider whatever happens in that state a failure but if I'm setting myself tasks that I feel are within my reach and then when I reach them I set a new task or a new goal and I have those and I can count those as all successes then I'm never going to be really sort of cut up or you know feel downtrodden because I didn't have this major moment that I would then consider a failure for not having attained. So we have more like a like a small goals like more 
reachable as you say than to have one big one like one huge well i still have big goals and big dreams and things that are like way beyond but i i i litter the path to that with other goals mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. small attainable mm-hmm. successes mm-hmm. and um you know if i don't manage to do something this year or in these six months then i move it to the next six months or the next year mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah i totally agree with that uh who is who is your hero what qualities makes them your choice my fear or my did you say hero or fear? who is your hero my and, hero yeah oh, and, wow. and what and what qualities <laughs> makes them your choice of that person? um it's your mother it's your partner in life it's i mean of course i think you have a lot of influence from your mother since you were a little boy but uh, i mean you yeah. know now now that you now that you're going back in general in your life who was you know that one that you were admiring and you know you're my hero i don't know if i ever think of people as heroes mm-hmm. to be honest mm-hmm. but I, i do think of people that i know that i see as having become successful by whatever the you know measurement that they are being measured by whether it's themselves or other people and that to me is amazing when i see i mean somebody that was just in the room before marisha she and i went to university together she um is i think like sort of like internationally considered the handstand queen she's like a very world-renowned yoga instructor <laughs> so <laughs> that's amazing you know and that wasn't what she started off doing and that wasn't where her career path was sort of headed towards in the very beginning but it's ended up where she's gotten to and i think that's incredible or other friends of mine um that have found equal levels of success that are you know just remarkable to me and what i think is an amazing feature of those people is perseverance all of them well, have perseverance definitely perseverance is uh yeah it's uh something that uh, i think all the successful people have and they should have uh so you it's didn't... like a combination of perseverance and self-belief yeah 100 percent. i mean it's, i mean self-belief and then i think self-awareness <laughs> as well yes for <laughs> you sure. know uh so you didn't have even if you're uh, like a little boy or or a little bit Uh, older than a boy that like an idol like you know you someone even in the fashion industry later on someone you like you know like you know what I want to be like him like an idol someone that you know you really wanted to I mean when I was younger the the person for me that was the be all and all in fashion was John Galliano oh, okay 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 um, uh, I think I think I'm not sure I read in the past a John Galliano t-shirt back in Greece it was a really interesting uh, moment in my life but yeah because I had a couple of friends in the fashion in Greece and they were really really picky and uh, they really like you know like your mother for example you always you know in style and stuff so yeah I mean uh, no Galliano kind of clothes and it was really interesting back in the days um, so what what are you most proud of Um, I'm most proud of my relationship. Okay. I mean, all of them or the current one? No, my current one. I'm okay. engaged. Um, and okay. my, my partner, that's my, the thing that I'm most proud of is being engaged to him in our relationship. Okay. 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 I mean, yeah. Definitely. 
of course, being engaged with someone that means, of course, you have to be proud of, no matter what. Otherwise, of course. Otherwise, <laughs> yeah. What's? <laughs> I mean, my proudest moment was actually proposing. Okay. But um, yeah, so I guess it would make sense that then I would be most proud of mm -hmm. the relationship too. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes, hundred percent, hundred percent. How have your your priorities changed over time? Um, well, I guess, you know, when I was, when I was younger, I used to obviously want to go thing and I was always interested in being at every party and never missing an event at the opening of an envelope, but I wasn't <laughs> far off of it. And, you know, it's funny when I was 27, it literally flipped on its head. I just had no interest anymore in chasing the nightlife or any of those things. I wanted to get much more serious. Um, and yeah, and so my, my priorities really changed. And then, you know, over time they, they keep changing. And like I said, when I closed my business, my priorities changed from chasing the business and the industry to taking care of myself. And then, um, even now with COVID, you know, I'm very focused on taking care of myself still, but also my relationship and taking care of what I have that makes me happy in my life. So, um, my priorities have, I suppose, changed quite a lot, but at the same time, some of the people that have been in my life are still, it's like, you know, since I was 13 are still probably the core people in my life. And the people that I became friends with in LA are still very much the core people in my life. Um, and so I guess I have this a loyalty thing that has never gone away. Um, so do you, do you believe that, uh, can we actually trust nowadays? Because you talk about loyalty. Um, I don't know if you've been heartbroken other for partners, obviously, but I don't know how that changed you when it comes to trust and to be loyal. I mean, you're the same person when it comes to loyalty and trust as you were, I don't know, like five or 10 years ago. No, I guess I'm not because I probably don't give trust out as easily as I used to. Mm -hmm. um, and I try to protect that as like something that to be cherished, I suppose. Um, and I think that I am probably, I used to be loyal to a fault, you know, like I would just always see past whatever problems there were or I would always kind of explain away or find a reason for something you know mm -hmm. um, but there's people in my life that are not in my life anymore because I decided that you know <laughs> other things became more important than that kind of sense of loyalty or duty when they made no sense anymore um, and it is difficult to walk away from those friendships at times and the relationships but I think you know you make choices in life and they are supposed to be the choices that are to you know better yourself or to um, put yourself first uh, and that just means that things change over time you know and that's okay well things change over time of course and I think that choices define us as well Definitely. Uh, yeah uh, how do you because you talk about um, friendships and stuff how have you ever broken someone's heart? <laughs> oh, 
I don't know. <laughs> uh, I think if the person's um, heart cannot be broken for whatever reason, then no, I haven't. <laughs> um, but I so you did possibly, so now you... I'm thinking back, I think maybe I've broken somebody's heart, yes. Okay, okay. That, how did you feel about Did you actually notice that in that moment or you realize it after? Um, I mean, I was told it in the moment, I guess, but I think, you know, I, I, the reason why I didn't think it was real was because I didn't think that the person was actually, not only their heart was there to be broken, I think mm. that they thought that they had a heart to be broken, but they didn't, but perhaps okay. I really did because, you know, who's to say, it's not for me to say whether that person was being honest or not in mm -hmm. that sense. Mm -hmm. I haven't spoken to the person in like 15 years, so. Okay. Okay. Uh, how, what does your ideal life look like? I mean, in your mind, what was the ideal life that you want to live? How, how, would that, how, how does it look like in your world? Um, I, I, I still want to work. <laughs> I don't want to not be working. Um, I do want to work, but I also want to be able to balance that with travel and with my family, my relationship, um, and doing the things that really make me happy and not, you know, having to not be able to do stuff that makes me happy because there's an imbalance in the in my life. And I think that for most people, those imbalances really come from either a relationship or from a professional, you know, relationship or work life. And I think that that balance is really important to me. So right now I work, I'm actually studying as well. Um, I have time for my relationship. Um, I have time for myself. And so I feel like I do have quite a good balance of. You think you have so much time for yourself and for your relationship because of the COVID or you think since if the after the COVID finished the situation, you think you will be more busy or you can think you can balance as well? No, I think that it will be pretty much the same. I mean, the time that I make my, for myself, you know, besides the fact of doing TM twice a day, which is 40 minutes just for myself, which is more than some people have at all, is, you know, a really big factor. But mm. then after that, I have, um, you know, I'm conscious of making the time for my relationship, for myself, for my work life, and doing all those things. Um, kind of in, e in equal parts. Um, I think, you know, there can be like an amplification of things mm -hmm. or there could be like a sort of, a, I wouldn't say lessening, but like, you know, turning down the volume on certain things, mm -hmm. but it would all be in harmony. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, now that you say harmony and, uh, and stuff, how do you recharge yourself? Um, Well, definitely with the meditation, mm -hmm. um, going for walks outside. I always go for walks, you know, because we, I have a dog, so I have to walk the dog, <laughs> which is great, a great excuse to be outside, but it means like going to nature. And I really feel probably the most recharged in nature, either um, with the ocean on a beach or mm -hmm. in the mountains, that like will, at the extremes. That would be in the USA or the Bahia. <laughs> exactly. I mean, both of those, but also, you know, I love going to Greece, um, but I also like, you know, I'm happy in Switzerland in a mountain range um, uh -huh. or these different places. It's I, I'm not so into like 
flat rolling countryside hills i want there to be some kind of like dramatic edge of the earth experience mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah i think we have the same now that i'm gonna like the uh you know the ocean or the sea or, or the mountain so yeah i think that because uh, i grew up in mountains so that makes sense for me so when do when do you see yourself in five years time um having your own company completely like before something new something that well i still work from i still have my own company on the side um, mm. and i'm doing a couple small little projects that are really there for like my creative juices to flow <laughs> and I really would like to continue doing that I also would really enjoy continuing to work for Sheep Inc in this way that I work for them and I do consult for other people as well so those sort of like that kind of blend of working for myself working for other people consulting and being part of a bigger picture brand like Sheep Inc is really important to me and I would like to keep that um, I think Living I'm in always London. trying to like become a better version of myself, you know. Okay. So whatever that may look like, it's just about you know saying okay, a little. It's kind of like cooking, and I like maybe I'm like working on the same recipe over and over again. So I'm fine tuning it with like okay, so now I need to work on salt or the pepper. Or it needs a bit more spice or some acid or something like that. You know, it's about finding like the correct balance in the mm -hmm. dish. I like the I like the food example. <laughs> well, I love food. So yeah. <laughs> so you know, going. Uh, what advice you will give to yourself? Being, in five years time ahead, five years time ahead. Like for example, I'm gonna make it like in two parts. You okay. are you are in five years. Let's say 2026. What advice you will give? Alexander 2026 to Alexander 2021. What would Alexander 26 give to 21? Okay, yes. got it. <laughs> um, so you're 20,026. Yeah, so what my 40-year-old self yeah. to my 35-year-old self. So what you um, want to, to have actually to be, and then what you will tell to Alexander now that uh, mm. it has to do to be that guy. That's actually a much harder question than what people normally ask, which is like, what would you tell to your teenage self or to your two-year-old self or something like that? That's what we like to ask people when Melise, who's here, and I do our room. <laughs> But this is a much harder question. We're taking notes, Melise. Um, but I think, um, gosh, I mean, I think I would say to myself that I'm on the right track Mm -hmm. I just have to get past the end of COVID <laughs> and, um, and, you know, get back to a place where I'm able to find like the inspiration and the sort of creative energy in the way that I was before. Um, it's really key and a really important part of like feeding my soul as it were is like where I get my inspiration and, you know, creative energy from. And I think that it's really lacking and I feel that more than anything else at the moment. So I guess that my 40 year old self would be saying to me, like, just hold in there. It's not too much longer um, and keep on keeping on, I suppose, in mm -hmm. that sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then let's go to reverse. And then what will you say to Alexander five years ago, 2016? where he was somewhere um, stuck doing something and then you're 2021 what you would say to him so he will carry on or you know 
I think I would say to that version of myself. Um, Did Alexander change a lot since then to now? Yeah, I've changed a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I would say to that version of myself that uh, stop listening to the wrong people mm -hmm. and listen to myself more and to stop caring about what other people think mm -hmm. and care about you know what i want and what i want for myself and how i feel more mm -hmm. so and i mean luckily i think that's kind of what sort of started to happen you know when i closed my business but i think that that would have been right in the crux of me not being aware and observant and so that's what i would tell that person is like get out of here now <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i mean yeah I can, i can see what you mean uh what is uh, the one thing that you want to accomplish in your life just one thing what is your the thing that you want to actually be successful at it and to accomplish it um i mean there's something that i have in the back of my mind that i just want to like you know find a way to work on at some point one day i feel like i'm working towards it but it's not i'm not there yet but i would love one day to have a space for um really sort of like tweens and teenagers that are lgbtqia plus um to express themselves creatively in whatever form of creativity they want to explore but really focused on like creative arts I think, you know, there are a lot of arts and creative programs at schools, of course, but I, I think reflecting on my own experience of being in schools that had great resources for me to use, somehow I still wasn't comfortable to make use of them and I still felt judged and I still felt like I was being stared at or all these things um, that made me very uncomfortable in myself, but also held me back from exploring who I was creatively to the fullest extent. So I'd love one day to have a kind of center or you know foundation facility, something like that, that really was almost like a trusted space for kids to come to basically discover themselves through creativity. Okay, that's good. So in regards to that what you will change if somehow you have the uh, you know the ability in uh, in the fashion design schools what you what you will do different if you can somehow you know change kind of the way that you know the students are learning the fashion design um it's hard for me to say because i haven't i didn't go to fashion school so i don't really know everything uh, okay. about how it works okay. but i i believe that there's sort of still being taught an old school version of the fashion industry mm -hmm. um that is sort of setting them up for disaster <laughs> <laughs> but i don't know because i'm not yeah. involved and i didn't go okay uh what would you say to all the people who want to be uh you know to be in the fashion industry uh what advice you would give Um, I would say to them that they really need to focus on what it is that they're going to be offering and why, and then find the people that want that. I always tell people there's like over 7 billion people on this planet, so there's room for everybody to have a business, there's room for everybody to go into whatever kind of creative business they want, they'll find, but they just have to find that customer. And I mean, in today's world, there's more and more and more tools available to give people the opportunity to find them okay now that you say that um, another question came in my mind have you ever find 
have you basically have you ever answered all the whys of your life in your life have you ever answered like you know we all sometimes we sit down we say like why i'm you know in that company why i'm doing what i'm doing have you answered all the whys in your life no <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure i haven't <laughs> okay okay i think that i think that's something that comes with experience or you never have a sit down and realize well i don't think i would mean i don't think i would ever be finished okay okay but obviously you have some answers of why says why you're doing what you're doing and why for example you are in a relationship that you are obviously yeah i okay. have some answers but there will always be new things that will you know deserve or require the question <laughs> <laughs> you know, so come back to me in 40 years <laughs> okay. Let's say five years where you're gonna be fun. What is one thing you want to accomplish 2021 this year? I just want to keep it together. Okay. <laughs> so it's more like so. it's more like a mentally to you think. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, you have you know you have the two, three, I don't know how many podcasts you are in a club room. So you have one with Alessandro on Sundays. You have, yeah. one, you have one on Monday, which is like fashion, mental kind of uh, discussion that you do. With uh, Melise, who's with, here, exactly. Yeah, we host that one together, yeah. <laughs> and uh, there's something else that you do in club room or something? Um, like yeah, some... and then on Fridays at the moment with Sheep Inc, we do a room where we discuss kind of the future of fashion and sustainability or just, just really the future of fashion from different angles um, and various different people from the company are involved and then anybody can join in. Last week we did it as a wouldn't it be cool session um, about what is the future of clothing you know it's something that we do in the business often to sort of just brainstorm so we just wanted to have like a total brains open platform brainstorm anybody could take part so those are the kind of like three things that i do at the moment on clubhouse so friday sunday monday but you know i dive into other rooms here and there and mm. see what's going on there's mm. so much interesting you know yeah. so many different interesting things happening in conversations yeah that's true that's true clubhouse is getting bigger and bigger and so many interesting things around um i, I remember now that you say about the friday um you have like a like a title on that uh, on that um, uh, room that was saying like just gave us your most crazy idea or something when it comes to fashion that probably is not there yet have you ever did you ever heard anything like really weird that was from someone usually it comes from me uh, okay. <laughs> the most out there ideas so, um, what was the most uh, the idea that you uh, brought up when it comes to well fashion? I guess I mean I don't know last week I just said wouldn't it be cool if you know um clothing was interconnected so if i wanted to send somebody else a hug and if i hugged myself then like the piece of clothing that somebody you know i don't know in brazil was wearing a sweater that was connected to my sweater would feel the hug suddenly on their body okay wow wow you went really far <laughs> it's not that far away though in reality really um Yeah, because I mean, the Apple watches already have that, or yeah. the iPhone already has the ability to like send your heartbeat to other people, you know. So yeah, that's true. That's, um, true. that's true. It sounds crazy, but actually, a lot of the craziest things are sort of true. really not that far away. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you miss Brazil all the time. All the time. <laughs> 
So you prefer Brazil, USA, or London? Well, I love to live in London, but I consider myself a Brazilian American, so okay. I really I put it before the American. So okay, uh, are you seeing yourself being here in London or at some point going back? So it's more like because you're professionally or because you can combine everything together? Um, I think it's a com combination of life, uh -huh. work, uh -huh. um, you know, my, I have family here and in Europe. Um, yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, Alexander, I'm, uh, um, I'm really glad again that you are uh join this room with the number one and uh, uh so many things that i've learned uh, so many things that actually uh you gave me you know food for thought even for myself and i think from some other people who might hear the podcast so um uh, i'm i'm again thank you so much i'm really really thank glad me. i'm really really glad and i'm sure that uh, uh you know how's the how's the goal going and with your uh podcast when it comes to mental health and stuff uh, we might actually do something in the future when it comes specific to mental health because uh, you can I think you can tell a lot of things because you have actually a personal experience when it comes even from the business and even from relationships and stuff and even you know you even when you say earlier that you know five years ago you weren't the same person so you know there was a lot of things that you experienced to change to who you are right now so because uh, I'm, 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 I'm really interested in the mental health so uh, I think in the future we can make something like specifically in mental health so the people would love will, to. yes that be, I think that would be great thanks for having me as Alexander opinion. that was a pleasure <laughs> pleasure thank you so much thank you thank Appreciate you thanks guys for listening thank you thank you bye bye bye, bye. bye. bye.